You're listening to the Vincast, which is supported generously by Vinus, the iPhone app, which recognizes any wine with just the snap of a photo. It is a very simple app to use, yet it is completely revolutionizing the way that we enjoy wine. All you have to do is open the app on your iPhone, take a picture of the label of a wine you are enjoying, and the app will actually recognize what that wine is. Then you can uh, make a rating uh, or some comments about the wine and share it with your networks. So that network might be on the app itself where you can actually follow other wine lovers and wine professionals like myself, but you can also link it up with social media networks like Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook as well. You can find out real-time information about where you might be able to buy the wine and also what you might be expected to pay. Venus is changing the way we enjoy wine. Hello and welcome to episode number 39 of the Vincast. My name is James Gersbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino, and it is great to have you on board. It's great to hopefully have a lot of new listeners to the podcast. If this is your first time, welcome. Um, it's good to have you on board. Um, but of course, you can actually go back and listen to any of the previous episodes, uh, which you can find on intrepidwino.com under the Vincast section. Now, if you are a new listener, you may not know that this podcast is about wine, wine culture and wine people. And I try and chat with uh, people from all different elements of the wine industry to get their own unique perspectives and backgrounds and, and philosophies about wine. And occasionally I'll talk about a different topic. So I'm very excited to to have people getting in contact with me. Um, also open to any suggestions you might have about how I can improve the podcast or if you'd like to get involved in any way, whether that is um, contribution or even um, if you'd like to be promoted on the podcast, I'd love to hear from you. So on this episode, I have uh, a young guy by the name of Tom Barry, who is the third generation winemaker for Jim Barry Wines, which is a pretty well-known winery in the Clare Valley in South Australia. Now, uh, the Clare Valley, if you aren't aware, is very closely associated with the Riesling grape. And uh, at the moment, we are just about to hit summer of Riesling, and there's a number of different Riesling events all around Australia to promote that fantastic variety. So part of the reason I brought Tom on was to talk about Riesling and why it's so important, particularly in the Clare Valley, but also to hear about his background as a third-generation uh, winemaker. And um, it was a really interesting chat. I hope you enjoy it. Um, let us know if you did. Uh, and I'll be talking about some of those raising events after the interview. So enjoy and see you on the other side. Tom, thank you very much for joining us today on the Vincast. And uh, I really appreciate you uh, making some time. Obviously, I'm sure you are madly preparing for vintage. Well, James, no worries, mate. It's uh, now we can always make time. But um, yeah, we are. We're um, probably a couple of weeks away from picking. But How are things looking in the clear? Yeah, pretty good. Uh, so we've had, um, yeah, we probably had, you know, 70 to 80 mils of rain uh, last week, which was pretty good. Um, yeah, really freshened things up and. Um, yeah, really, uh, yeah, really, sort of setting us up for for a pretty pretty solid vintage, I think. After after quite a dry spring, or really dry spring, to be honest. Mm, awesome. Uh, so, Tom, um, you are actually my second um, next generation Australia's first family of wine guest. Uh, I actually had um, Rick, uh, who was obviously from uh, the Birch family. Yeah, yeah. Wines. 
Ricardo. Um, and obviously he is uh, from a different state, you know, a bit further away over in WA. But um, obviously his family is very intimately uh, familiar with that great, um, probably underappreciated uh, variety of Riesling. And yeah. that's part of the reason why I've uh, invited you on because um, there's some really fantastic uh, events and activities upcoming um, to promote Riesling. But we'll come back to that. So um, for the listeners who uh, may be unfamiliar with Jim Barry um, and, and the, how important uh, that name is to Australian wine, just give us a, a, a very brief kind of background on, on the Barry family and, um, and their contribution to wine. Well, James, um, so, so Jim Barry Wines was, was started by my grandfather. Um, so his, his name was James Brazil Barry um, and he, he graduated – from from Roseworthy College in 1947. Wow. Was, yeah, it really was. It was sort of one of the early, really, really early. So he was actually the 17th qualified enologist out of um, out of the Roseworthy course. Yeah, I think I might have mentioned on a previous episode that Roseworthy, I think, is the oldest agricultural or certainly the old, oldest kind of winemaking um, tertiary institution in the world. Yeah, I, I think yeah, I think so, and, and especially a lot of a lot of really really famous Australian winemakers have have gone through this course, and mm. you know, it just gives you some really good um, you know foundations to to you know build a career and and, and make really good wine. So yeah, um, he was actually the first first um, sort of group after the war to go through, um, and he he moved to Clare. He got a job um, in 1947 at Clarevale Cooperative. Uh, and um, basically, yeah, never left. He, he he moved to Clare. He loved it. He saw the potential to make table wine. Um, you know, back back uh, back in the forties, know, fifties, and sixties, a lot of fortifieds. Um, but he he saw the the potential of Clare to to go on and and make dry table wine. And and he saw the that Riesling, you know, Shiraz and Cabernet um, were, were going to be really suited to Clare. So. So, how developed was the Clare Valley as far as a, a, a region for for wine? Um, you know, obviously, uh, it's a reasonably well known region in Australia today, um, particularly obviously for the dry table wines. But um, back in that time when when there was so much fortified wine being produced in Australia, um, was the Clare Valley particularly big? No, no, it was extremely small. So there's probably a handful of wineries that, that made wine. Okay. So and and Grandpa was he, so after finishing he was the first qualified winemaker in Clare. Um, so there, there are other winemakers here, but none none that had any tertiary education. So he he so he came to Clare with a lot of knowledge and um, and really um, helped them sort of understand um, the uh, you know the chemical side of wine and, and how to make better wine and, and and controlling you know you're picking a little bit earlier in the vineyard so you can control your pH for you know microbial. Uh, spoilage and that sort of thing. So he was sort of came came at at it with a really scientific approach. Okay, you know, and, and I, obviously that um, you know was one of the first in you know a number of generations of of uh, winemakers who really like in terms of that technical understanding of wine and and the scientific approach to it really did establish Australian wine on the global scale. Now I've I've had you know a number of people who make wine from around um, Adelaide you know in South Australia, um, but you're the first person uh, you know f- obviously from the Clare um, the Clare Valley compared to sort of some of the more famous uh, well some of the other regions in South Australia is a little bit further away from Adelaide is it not? Yes, we are. Yep, yep, a little bit further. So we're probably 
you know, I'd say to be generous, we're two hours north of Adelaide. You can you can probably get there an hour and forty five, but two hours is uh, is probably more appropriate. Yeah. Okay. And as far as the the climate of the Clare Valley, how does it uh, differ from um, you know some of its closer uh, cousins like uh, the Barossa? I'd probably describe us as continental um, in terms of so really um, really warm um, warm days, but then co- really cold nights, and we get that because um, we are quite high up. So we are, we're still situated like Barossa um, and Eden Valley in the the, the Mount Lofty ranges. Yep. Um, so really we're and, – and some of the vineyards here are close to 500 metres. So that really gives us um, a really good uh, – yeah, really good foundations for, for growing growing um, really good table grapes and, and then Riesling really fits that um, – into that. So, so yeah, if, that, that if was you, always one of the things I found very interesting about the Clare Valley was that, you know, you could produce some really outstanding um, white wines, you know, particularly from Riesling but also – some nice red wines as well, you know, from Shiraz and Cabernet. It, it, it does have a, it seems to have a lot of diversity uh, of microclimates, so you can actually make a, a range of different styles. Oh, man, absolutely. Um, like if you look at technical data of of um, of how hot Clare is, so we're not considered a cool climate um, and probably warm climate, but um, but yeah, it's just that attitude that we can really that, that enables us to to make those sort of high quality. Um, rieslings and, and reds that we can, you know, if we were if we were down at, at 200 meters on the flat, um, I think would make um, some pretty, you know, hot, flabby wines. But it's that attitude that uh, really sets us apart. Now, as far as uh, your kind of when you when you were growing up, you are the, the third generation the third generation of qualified winemakers within the Barry family. Um, what are your kind of earliest memories of wine? Um, you know, because your father took over. Uh, or, or joined your grandfather in the winemaking, and he similarly um, was, was, you know, went and, and studied at university. What are your earliest memories of wine? How how early do you remember being aware of wine, and how important it was to your family? Oh man, I suppose you you know I was, I was young. You were in five or six, and you always have a little sip at the table. Yeah, but it was quite quite funny. I just remember coming into the winery as a kid and swinging on the ropes off the catwalks. <laughs> I've got all these ropes that you pull up the hoses and, and sure. up and down buckets and stuff, and that's all I remember. You know, you come in and you'd swing on these, swing on these hoses, and you know, try to go from you know a bit of Tarzan rope to rope. But um, so, but for, for us, we were, we were farmers, and and sort of that's what, uh, what that's what the family did. So for me, it wasn't really any different than than my friend that I went to school with, and their parents were sort of sheep or or, um, or wheat farmers. We just did wine. So for me, it was. Um, it probably wasn't until I was uh, a little bit older that I realised sort of the, the big steps that, that my grandpa had taken, and then and then dad as well um, to to set up Jim Barry Wine. So and that's really why I've gone into it to to continue that that family legacy and you know try to keep drive driving good quality wines out of Clare. So there was a real sense of community in in terms of being in that you know slightly more rural uh, area. Um, and you know all the other um, families living in the Clare, you know, being involved with agriculture in some way. Um, you know, did, was was agriculture kind of part of your education as far as high school at all? Um, I suppose not. Not so much high school, but just growing up. You know, like we always had sheep and cattle at home as well. Even yeah. um, you just go, you know, before school, you go and. Um, 
you know, feed the feed the sheep or feed the little cows, and <laughs> um, and it's just stuff like that. You know, it's just it's just really good. You know, as a, as a young kid, you just get into that sort of stuff, and and you sort of get to understand um, yeah agriculture, and and that's sort of why I've moved in into the uh, into the business and the family and the family ties as well. Like it's um, yeah, I just couldn't think of really doing anything else. How um how young you know obviously statute of limitations, but how young were you when you first got to try wine? Uh, in, in within the family, oh mate, we'd always always encouraged to have a uh, have a little sip um, around the table, and it was yeah, really growing up. You sure. still obviously very very green, and um, but it wasn't pushed on us at all. Um, so that's what we did. Um, yeah, it wasn't. Was, was there ever kind of uh, an expectation that you were going to sort of follow in the family business, or were you encouraged to kind of make the decision for yourselves? No, not at all, not at all. I could have done, got off and um, and done done other things. Um, if, um, but yeah, for, for us. And um, was yeah. there any doubt in your mind that, that that's what you're going to do? Oh, oh, mate. If I was uh, if I was a better golfer, I'd probably be playing golf. But I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't good enough at golf, so I, uh, that's potentially that's, uh, a golf career is a little bit more lucrative than wine. Yeah. Let's be honest, but obviously, you know the 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 amount of people who can actually uh, make a lot of money from playing golf is pretty pretty small. Yeah, exactly, mate. I uh, I realised from a uh, young age that I wasn't going to make any money out of golf, so so this was uh, the next best thing for me. And um and so you you sort of decided that that's that, that's what you're going to do um and, and and what so finishing finishing school what was the first step in uh in kind of following in that path? Yeah, mate, it was probably actually just a couple of years before I finished school. I was uh, I was 15, so I was in year 10. Yeah. And, um. That was the that was sort of that light bulb moment where I said, okay, I want to do winemaking. Um, but I wasn't that great at chemistry, so I just sort of knuckled down and um, and he sort of worked on my chemistry because yeah. I knew that was one of the prerequisites to get into winemaking. And um, yeah, worked hard at that and and got through. And then um, yeah, I sort of yeah, got into winemaking and I was stoked. Um, yeah, I had a year off. I worked um, I worked at Yulumber in the Barossa, and then um, yeah, just sort of travelled around and and then. Um, yeah, then I was into the winemaking the following year. Is the the approach at your lumber, uh, you know, because again, another a large family owned winery, um, or large-ish, uh, um, what was was it a little bit different there, or did you find a lot of synergies between your lumber and Jim Barry? Yeah, obviously they're they're multi generational, um, um, but their their focus is on on quality and making quality at at every point. So that was um, something that I took away from there. Um, so yeah, and that's what we try to do, you know, make quality at, at every price point. So I'm um, trying to over deliver for, for the, the bottle of wine that you, that you buy. So that was, um, sort of what I took away. Um, and it was, it was great, you know, they're a fantastic company and, and, um, got a lot, a lot of, you know, long outstanding employees, which is what we aim for as well. Mm. Um, now, as far as uh, your studies, you uh, were the first of uh, of the the family to study winemaking after Roseworthy, obviously, had become part of the University of Adelaide, and then had relocated to the Waite campus, which is actually uh, in Adelaide or you know in 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 Greater Adelaide. How did you find um, studying at the Waite campus? Mate, the way campus was great. Um, I had I've got some really good mates still from from uh, from uni. Were there a number of other kind of multi generational you know family members as well? 
There actually wasn't when I went through. Interesting. Uh, okay. It was interesting. And the, and the, um, the group that I finished with, only eight of us actually finished, which was, which was quite funny. So we, we might have started with 20 and only eight um, graduated from our year. So a few went to do Vidi. Um, and then a few sort of yeah pulled out as well. So okay, yeah, very small. That class of '09 was pretty small. Right, interesting. No, I think I think we missed out a little bit from um, to be honest, going to Adelaide and not living on campus with with uh, all our mates. Um, you know, my old man's got some fantastic stories of Roseworthy and you know living on campus and you are sort of in in each other's um, in, in each other's pocket all the time and the and the uh, the relationships you make. Um, are fantastic. So yeah, yeah we- I've, I see. I've spoken to people who who studied at Roseworthy, not necessarily in the winemaking or the viticulture, in uh, in the marketing or business side of things. And you know, even then, there was a lot of um, real camaraderie, and they would get together. And so the, the you know the business students would get together with the winemaking, and they'd sort of swap wines or they'd open up wines together, and it'd be real a really interesting and fun collaborative environment. Yeah, I, I think we, we tried to do that, but you know, when you're not living on campus together, sort of, you, you, get, you tend to sort of go off in your own direction as well. So, um, I do. Th- it was a great. It was really good, but yeah, I think it would have been great to go through Roseworthy. Still, would have been good fun. Yeah, yeah you were still. I'm assuming um, working vintage whilst you were studying. Were you working back at home, or were you working anywhere else? Mate, just um, you know, just in summer holidays, I'd, I'd come in and drive tractors, or you know, winter holidays, I'd do that sort of stuff, but. Um, not too much. Um, pretty, pretty full, full on course. So you know, two thousand, uh, the third year, you actually do a vintage at uni, which was great. Okay. And then, um, and then in fourth year, they send you out to do do your placement. So you do a ten or twelve week placement at a winery. Yep. Um, so that's they were the the uh, sort of the experiences I had while I was there, and and um, yeah, I tried to go to Shaw and Smith for my own, my fourth year placement, which was great. So yeah, they're um, yeah, fantastic. Fantastic winery and and fantastic people up there and and make make really really smart wines. So that was that was my decision to to head up there to the deals. Um, and before after the studies, uh, you had the opportunity to do a bit of travel and and working overseas as well. I did, mate. Yep. Um, now again, talking of Riesling, I uh, I understand you actually got the opportunity to work in Germany. I did. I did. What vintage was that? Oh, that was 2010. Okay. Uh, so wow, what a vintage to be working. I know, mate. It was uh, it was interesting. It was very interesting, but I learned a lot. Um, I um I travelled through Germany um, visiting wineries in early 2012, and. Um, most of what I was tasting was from that 2010 vintage, and I was just blown away at uh, mm. at the quality. You know, a lot of people were saying that uh, it was a smaller vintage, um, but what they got was just unbelievably good fruit and um, really concentrated. And when they were telling me the the levels of acidity, I just couldn't believe it. But then they said, "But you know, it's it's balanced by these you know really um, high levels of sugar as well." Oh mate, you're spot on. Yeah, 2010, low yields, high acidity. Um, yeah, it was uh, it was really interesting. And you know they um, they do the double salt acidification, so they um, actually deacidify. So we did a bit of that, which was interesting. Mm. Um, and then, something that something that is completely um, <laughs> you would never do that in Australia. No, no, no. Well, maybe in 2011. But yeah, yeah, maybe. Nah, nah. 
no, we don't. So yeah, de- yeah, deacidifying was interesting, but mm. uh, yeah, it was just you know another one of those those uh, vintages. That's why you go overseas to to learn different things and to see how they do it and to deal with this, sort of see how they deal with um, their sort of vintage conditions, which are completely different to ours. Now you worked vintage at uh, Dr. Lawson. I did, mate. Yeah. And obviously, Dr. Lewison is uh, probably one of the most um, prominent producers in the Mosul region of uh, Germany. Uh, and they obviously are sourcing fruit from lots and lots of different vineyards. Uh, did you have a, a particular favorite vineyard that you were taking from? Yeah, I love I love Ernie's um, Erziger Wurzgarten vineyard. Mm. Um, so, yeah, those beautiful wines out of there, especially, yeah, like the... The Spatlays and the Oslays out of there are just stunning wines. Were you doing any picking yourself? I didn't get out to do the picking, mate. Um, so it was me and another Aussie guy, and we were on. We were pressing all the Riesling. So we'd come in about three o'clock in the afternoon, um, and then we'd just start, you know, processing. Mm. So that was great. Uh, well, yeah, it's interesting. I I happened to uh, you know that same year that I was visiting. I I came back and worked vintage at a couple of uh, wineries in Germany, and and. You know, I, it's actually been my only winemaking experience. Uh, I'm ashamed to say I should I should do some more. Um, I felt like, to a certain extent, I was missing out because you're you're really only making white wines, and you know the winemaking is a, a little bit less involved with the whites when you're sort of just pressing and then fermenting, and that's kind of it. You know, with reds, obviously you're you're doing plunging and that sort of thing. But um, uh, I'm, I'm guessing that uh, working the Dr. Lawson wine, there would be a uh, a fair amount of tanks. Yeah, mate, there was this, but just the vineyards, you know, how they get the fruit, the pristine fruit from the vineyard into the into the winery and then it was pretty crazy. It was just me and another Aussie guy, as I said, and they said, okay, you, you boys are uh, pressing the vintage, so fair bit of responsibility. But I don't know, with, I suppose I was pretty clear in my mind what I wanted to do and that was to set out to, to, um, to go to really good raising producers and, and see what they do and then hopefully bring a few... Um, a few little tricks home um, and, you know, sort of continue, you know, the, the Jim Barry Riesling winemaking. Did you get the opportunity to, to, to travel to any other wine regions? Oh, while I was there, I didn't, unfortunately. No, 2010, but 2011, I did one in Austria. With, oh, uh, okay. With Bert Salomon. So I've done, that was 2010 and 2011. Um, did a couple of Riesling vintages then, which was, which was fantastic. Um, so, yeah, really, um, yeah, as I said, sort of trying to focus on Riesling and, and what they're doing really well. And, and, and so how did you kind of, um, what, the, what you took, what you learnt, particularly in terms of Riesling, how did you kind of bring that back to, to Australia when you, I'm assuming after that, you know, you came back and, okay, I'm joining the family winery, I'm now making the wines. Or, or, or was that, had you already been, were you sort of chasing the vintage, so to speak, you came, come, would come back, you know, off season in Europe and and make the wines back at home. Um, oh man, I suppose if I'm uh, if I'm understanding your question, um, I I did I went I went across um, to do to do that, but I was I didn't really want to stamp my own, my own authority on what we're doing because we've been doing um, you know we've been making reasoning at Jim Barry for a long time, so it was just about tweaking a few things that I took from these these vintages and bringing them home, and then you know just trying to trying to get better because um, I'm not about just, you know, changing for the sake of change um, just because I've, you know, come in and um, I've done a couple of vintages overseas. So, you know, think about things, you know, very deeply and, and what we can do better and, 
and especially styles and um, and yeah, really sort of and then in the vineyard as well because obviously over there that's that's a big thing. It's, it's all the vineyard. Mm. We've sort of up, we've tried to up our game here. We we always try to get better, and um, and that's the key. Twenty fifteen, we'll try to make the best wines that we can and and make better wines than we did in twenty fourteen. So tell me uh, about the the sort of wines that Jim Barry is making these days. Mate, so we're really just trying to make really clean, aromatic um, white wines or Riesling. So we're really um, we've been pretty clear. Probably over the last ten years, we've only really made Riesling, a little bit of Sauvignon Blanc, but we're getting out of that. Um, so yeah, for for us, it's all about Riesling, and we want to we want to be seen as a Riesling producer, um, you know, in Australia, which is our biggest Riesling market, but then um, overseas as well. And um, I, I, there's obviously another sort of side to the racing story for you and your brother Sam, um, and that is with Chloe Claire. Tell me a little bit about how you guys got the opportunity to, um, to take on the Chloe Claire story. Oh, man, this is phenomenal, actually. We, um, so when, when, Dad and, um, when Dad and his brothers bought Florida from Lindemans back in 1986, um, so this was a huge, a huge move for them. They were, they were about my age. Um, so, yeah, they're 26, 27. That's when Chardonnay was booming. So they um, – Jim wanted to buy it, but if he if he actually bought it, Grandma was going to divorce him. <laughs> so so because, you know, Grandpa in 1979 went out for a Sunday drive and bought Lodge Hill. So there was no way that he was going to be allowed to, to buy another vineyard. But um, he goes, come on, boys, this is a, this is a bargain. Um, it's one of the you know the great Australian raising vineyards, and, and it's, got, it's up for sale. So so they grabbed it, and then it, there was a small house on the vineyard that they sold, you know, with a with a few acres of riesling, and they sold that just to help help finance the, the rest of the vineyard, and then that that was what where Clo Claire started. So Clo Claire started in 1991 from this small house and the small small bit of dry grown riesling, um, and then in 2007. Then they they approached us and said, "Would you like to buy it back?" So this was um, this was phenomenal. So yeah, so 2008 was our first vintage um, of Cloclair. So we, 2008 Cloclair Riesling, um, and yeah, we've um, it's been fantastic. So we make we don't make it at Jim Barry Wines. We make it at our friend um, Daniel Wilson from the Win- Wilson Vineyards. Mm-hmm. So another um, he, he makes some fantastic Riesling and and um, yeah, sort of hand picked and and then put it through put it through his winery. And, and fermented out, so it's um, yeah. Cloclair has been great. It was really good learning experience for us, um, getting to Melbourne and Sydney and, and meeting um, and sommeliers and because um, it is it's a very small quantity of wine and um, probably you know a few doors that we probably don't get into with Jim Barry. So, give me tell me what your impressions of the the, the way that Riesling kind of sits in the uh, particularly in the Australian market these days now. Um, Riesling has always been kind of the wine professionals, darling. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's one that a lot of people who work in the industry and, and wine writers, that kind of thing, they'll always choose it themselves. Whereas the consumers for so long, you know, they obviously you just said Chardonnay was booming in the eighties and in the nineties. And then as people, as consumers kind of wanted to move away from those very rich, fat, oaky kind of Chardonnays, they went to the other extreme. Um, but rather than sort of choosing Riesling, which is a shame, they went for Sauvignon Blanc, which obviously allowed the New Zealand um, boom to, to really kick on. Um, 
where you know Riesling has always kind of continued to 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 shine and and I for a long for a long time have felt that Riesling is one of the best value varieties in Australia provided that it comes from the right spot um how how do you think that Riesling has been going a little bit more recently obviously there's been lots of uh energy around it and events to promote it um, I think I think it's still a, a very industry-driven um, variety. Um, I think consumers are understanding a bit more, but there's still there's still a lot of lot of consumers that, that still think it's the that old sweet sort of German style of riesling, um, and it's quite amazing um, that uh, this sort of stigma stayed with it for all these years. So, you know, it's events like um, riesling down under that hopefully there's a on the Sunday it's the the riesling uh, riot that'll you know just just move people in that right direction, and and um, but I think I think it is uh, it is people are understanding a little bit more. Um, you know, we we still don't want it to get too popular because then you know people people overplant it, overcrop it. Um, well, in the same way that it happened with Chardonnay, in the same yeah. way it's happening with Sauvignon Blanc, you know, people will ask for it, and then they kind of get there's there's sort of a maturity phase, and they go, oh, most of this is crap. Yeah, and we we just don't want people to get into it for the wrong reasons. So we're we're um a bit so we I suppose we're purists really. We want we want to make the best wines we can. We make them you know low extraction rates. Um, so the, the lower phenolics we can make the better and um, try to make pure examples of of clear riesling. So um, yeah, hopefully you know if the if it gets too popular, the bigger the big boys might get into it and they sort of um, yeah mate. Uh, not make the style that reflects the variety. Do you find that there's still um, a bit of a misunderstanding and, and that in a lot of consumers' minds, Riesling automatically equals sweet? I, I think so, yeah. I think people, um, whether they get fed this by, you know, the older generation or because even a few people, you know, yeah, you know, mid-30s and stuff, they, they might still think it's sweet. Um, whether they're drinking the wrong Riesling, I don't know, but... Yeah, I, st- I still remember like my old my first boss in wine. You know, when I was working in retail, he would still, and this is in two thousand and four, he would still refer to it as Ryan Riesling. Yeah, oh, oh, that's my. I love that. I've just been down in our shed um, earlier today, and we've, I've pulled out. There was a 19, 1982 Jim Barry Lodge Hill Ryan Riesling, and oh, is this cl- it's classic? That's my birthday. You're gonna have to send it to me, mate. Is it really? Yeah. Oh, mate. Well. we'll because we were pulling out some old Riesings to, to um, for the Riesing down under, uh, Riesing through the ages. So we've we finally settled on a was it a Lodge Hill 1986 Ryan Riesling. Wow! I'll take a photo of it and I'll give you an email tomorrow. Awesome! And, yeah, I'll tell you these old labels are classic. Now um, Riesling, obviously, uh, I think to a large extent Riesling suffers the same difficulties, but that still that has that love affair. Um, with certain people uh, globally, because I think you know, German, I know German Riesling still has difficulty in selling or at least communicating how good the wine is, and that was kind of the idea behind um, the summer of Riesling, which uh, I believe was started from a, a guy up in New York City, in which did kind of make its way to Australia, particularly in Sydney. Um, are you guys involved with uh, summer of Riesling at all? Uh, yes, we will be. Um, so I know Claire Valley's got a stand at Summer of Riesling. Um, personally, I'm not. We'll be uh, we'll be right vintage. I think it's. You know, it's a tough time. It is a tough time of year for you guys. 
I think it's like, is it 18th of February, I think, off the top of my head? Yeah, I think February is, is the big month for it. Yeah, so, yeah, but Paul Greco, who who started it, he's he's phenomenal with what he's done for Riesling. Um, and, yeah, we've been lucky enough. He's, he's poured a few of our wines on at his bar in New York and, um, yeah, really got people sort of got the got their ears up and then sort of, yeah, listening to what Riesling does well. So, and this is what we've done. Like, we've, we've, we've always supported these Riesling events. Um, and it was really nice to, to be asked by Franklin State to, to join them in co-sponsoring um, Riesling Down Under with, with Pikes and, and Framingham from New Zealand. So I think it's, um, yeah, it's going to okay, be Okay, no, I'm, I'm actually interested because, you know, in the past, and I think it was every other year, Franklin Estate would have their international Riesling tasting and, you know, got quite a lot of press and there were lots of um, producers who would be part of it, but I think they were the kind of the, the impetus behind it. Whereas Riesling Down Under is a little bit different. It's a bit more collaborative. Uh, well, by, by very, very similar um, setup for the event. So very, um, basically there's yeah three days, two or three days, and um, yeah, basically we just thought we'd be able to maybe get a few more numbers and um, get uh, get a few more people along if, if it was that yeah, collaboration. So, you know, um, Franklin did a, an absolutely amazing job. Their wines are phenomenal. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, just, you know, spread the workload a little bit as well. Get a few, get a couple more wineries in. Um, Early on for me as a, as a, you know, wine professional, Pikes was always the, uh, the benchmark Riesling. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I actually, I think when I started to buy in the secondary market wines, which had a bit of age on them, you know, whenever I'd see Pikes Riesling, it was something I'd kind of always try and snap up. And, and I had some in my cellar. I might, I might even still have a bottle. Um, and one of the one of the really important things for me with Riesling is uh, is screw cap. Yes. Now, obviously, one of your uh, neighbours in Jeffrey Grosset, uh, I know he kind of embraced screw cap uh, a long, long time ago, and has and clearly, you know, people like Jeff and other Riesling producers have shown the the potential for aging Riesling under screw cap. Um, do do you uh, agree with that? You know that. Because obviously Riesling was, when I started learning about wine, Riesling was um, explained in terms of the aging. It, it it was great for kind of a couple of years and then it would really dip down and just sort of shut down. And then after sort of depending on, you know, the wine, somewhere between seven and maybe even 15 years, it would just start to come out and the wine was quite different. But I understand that um, aging on a screw cap, it's not not quite the same. What, have you Have you... Have you kind of had that kind of experience, or what do you reckon? Yeah, I suppose it's just the variability with with um, with screw caps that we're just not seeing, like um, we did with the corks. Um, so yeah, I think you might still get that dip, but I think it comes back into the next phase of its life um, a lot quicker. Um, and as you said, yeah, Jeff, that was um, he's really done done well. And I think I think for Claire though, um, that looking at that the bigger picture. What the Claire winemakers did as a, a collaboration of you know all getting behind um, the screw cap back in two thousand because um, um, you know you know if you get it's pretty hard to get imagine that getting forty wineries in um, in Italy to do the same thing yeah so you know to get everyone going okay we're going to do a screw cap um, and I say this you know everywhere I go um, about you know you know and that I think that show, says a lot about Claire as a, as a community and as a um, 
as a winemaking community that they said, okay, well, we're focused on quality. Um, this is this is the steps that we've got to take to get the quality, and let's do it. And yeah, not not no one really blinked an eye. They just all of a sudden from '99 to 2000, we've gone from cork in '99, and then everyone's got a screw cap in 2000. So I think that's the really clear message of of how you know Claire is was um, at the forefront of it um, as a as a you know cl- collaboration. Now, as um, my my second official uh, AFFW guest. Um, how, how have you have you have you guys um, found it? it's been really fantastic to kind of be part of that um, group of you know really really strong uh, Australian names as far as wine? Oh, absolutely! Like we, I still pinch myself because we're you know we're fifty five years old, Jim Barry Wine, so we're extremely young um, in terms of the group. You know, there's people there like Tyrrells and and Henschke's and and Yolumba who are one hundred and fifty years. Um, so we we feel extremely lucky to be a part of the group, um, but I think the best thing for me has been this next generation. Um, you know, me- meeting blokes like Rich Birch. Um, you've got yeah the Brown girls. You've got there's a whole group of people, um, and we we get together. Um, not enough, but we get together a couple of times a year. Uh, this year we're actually heading to WA to do um, to do Howard Park, um, and that's been the best thing I think. Um, but to, to to meet these these other young guys and girls who are sort of going through similar things in their their wine, wineries, um, and you know you bounce off each other, you ask some questions, um, and it's yeah it's a really really good thing. And then to meet these old boys as well, absolute legends of the industry, um, who's just you know you, you wouldn't get close to otherwise, and it's just been fantastic. Mm. I'm sure um, any event with the. Uh... With the Osbournes, it's going to be fun. <laughs> oh, jeez. Darry is a legend. Oh, he's just so funny. Absolutely cracks me up every time. Now, tell me. I'm going to put you on the spot here. Yeah, mate. The Clare Valley and Riesling are synonymous. Mm-hmm. Why is the Clare Valley so good for Riesling? Oh, mate, I, I have to say, you know, we've, it's the attitude, you know, through the we, – we are in the Mount Lofty Ranges. Um but I think I think it's a clear message that we've sent from an early um, from an early time, and, and that screw cap's been one of them. Um, but it's it's the, the the companies that have stuck to Riesling for the last twenty five or thirty years. You've got you've got families like Pikes, Paulettes, um, Mitchells that have just stuck there and, and made made Riesling and and you know put these wines out of the market at a really good value and good quality wines. And um, and people that have drunk these wines over time, and, and you said to yourself, James, that you know you found old pikes and you, you snap them up on the secondary market. Um, these are you know these are the people that have continued to make really good wines, and they're community people, and and I think that's why people sort of can show show that you know relation to to Claire and, and Riesling, and um, yeah, people are, and and I don't know if you've ever done a gourmet weekend, mate. Um, May we always used to have a big gourmet festival, so so we were sort of the first um, first region behind um, doing a big food and wine festival back in the eighties. Wow! Yeah, we've we had um, far out. What was it? It was twenty five years, thirty years, I reckon. So so we were sort of the early ones of that, getting people up, getting young people up, drinking riesling, drinking, um, and yeah, no, it's been been really good. So. You know, we've, yeah, I think we're very lucky. We're small family wineries up here, and 
and yeah, striving to make good wines. Fantastic. Well, um, look, I do appreciate your time, uh, Tom. Uh, obviously, in pre- preparations for all the uh, different reasoning events, and but also uh, vintage. Um, now, tell me, um, give us uh, all of the details where they can find your wine. So, websites, social media, whatever you can reel off. Oh, geez, yeah, websites. Um, so, our website, um, com is always one. Um, and if people go to the websites, they can find, um, you know, uh, possibly stockists, but more importantly, um, how they can keep in touch with you as far as uh, social media like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Absolutely, mate, yep. Fantastic. Look, um, I look forward to catching up with you. Hopefully, um, I might be able to come along and interview a couple of our international guests uh, next month, but um, I'm keen to try some of the Cloak Claire wines myself. Oh, mate, we'd love to. We'll make sure you interview Ernie. He is an absolute cracker. Um, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm sure he won't uh, disagree. I, I believe he likes talking. Oh, mate, absolutely loves it. He's, he's fantastic. He's an inspiration. And, and Etienne Hugel, who is another, another very, very funny Frenchman. Fantastic. Look, um, I appreciate your time and uh, look forward to catching up with you soon. Yeah, good on you, James. We'll see you in a couple of weeks, mate. Tom, we're talking all about Riesling. As I mentioned, there are lots of different Riesling events coming up, uh, particularly in Melbourne and Sydney. So in Sydney, the website is summeroffriesling.com.au and that is running um, on the 15th of February, but there's going to be lots of other events around Sydney as well. And the website for Melbourne is rieslingdownunder.com.au and and that is running for several days uh, in the second week of February. But there's going to be lots of other Riesling-based events uh, at wine bars and restaurants around town, so do do a bit of research. Uh, a great resource, of course, is um, What's Up Buttercup, uh, the um, events website. And as always, you can follow me on uh, Twitter and Instagram at IntrepidWino, and you can follow the podcast on Twitter at The Vincast to get news about all the new episodes. You can like me on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash IntrepidWino. And at my website, IntrepidWino.com, you will find all the previous episodes of the podcast, lots of different writings that I've made over the past few years about my experiences and travels. And you can also find links to the podcast on Stitcher and iTunes. And if you go there, you can subscribe, so you'll download the episode automatically. And if you do subscribe on either of those platforms, I do please ask that you rate and review the podcast um five stars would be fantastic of course but um it really does help me out a lot until next time bye